Get ready for another fantastic episode of the F-14 TomCast. We're talking about F-14D combat systems. Today we're talking to an experienced F-14D Rio about the APG-71 radar that was such an improvement over the AUG-9, as well as a whole bunch of other systems like the Erst and more. In addition, we have some announcements of interest, contest winners, new merch, and more. So strap in and get ready for launch. On the flight deck, crews are now manning for the next launch. It's time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop parks, and exhaust. It's time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. When the Navy finally funded the improved Tomcat, which they should have done 10 years earlier, one of the most attention-grabbing features was the new engines, right? But maybe more important for combat effectiveness was the new APG-71 radar and the other weapon system improvements. Our guest today is former F-14D radar intercept officer, Mark, call sign Fun Malay, who will give us the 411 on the tail gunner position on the Super Tomcat. Hey, thanks for getting us started, Crunch. Uh, fun, all my time is in the uh, in the AUG 9A model Tomcat, so I can't wait to hear why the APG 71 and the F 14D was, was such a great improvement. So let's start them up and get airborne. To get us started, Fun, how about telling us where you're from, how you got into uh, naval aviation, how you got into Tomcats, and uh, the basics like that? Well, Crunch Bio, thanks for having me tonight. I mean, I really feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants uh, here to talk about the the, uh, the F-14 Delta uh, and all of the magic that aircraft brought. Bio, I'm sorry that you had no time in the Delta. Um, as, I'll, as I'll try to share tonight, my only A time was going through the Top Gun course. And man, that was F-14A appreciation time. So we'll get into that, I'm, I'm sure. So... Uh, I am a 1996 graduate from the Naval Academy, and it's good to see uh, a number of Academy grads who've been guests of yours. It really is cool to see how that institution's um, sent a lot of wonderful people to that community. Um, I was a one of the many who was inspired by the movie when I was 12 years old, and <laughs> also inspired to be to follow the astronaut track. Um, it's also been fun to listen to the podcast there uh, bio, and here's how so many. Tomcat aviators had that uh, common thread as well as that as a as an inspiration to join the Tomcat community. Um, got to the Naval Academy, became a physics major, had no idea what a naval flight officer was, let alone a radar intercept officer, like most of us. Um, my eyesight deteriorated pretty quickly being a physics major, as you can expect, and it went from 2020 to 2200 like it felt overnight. And uh, graduated with glasses, switched to contacts. Meanwhile, I learned about the, uh, the F-14 Rio program, um, courtesy of a summer cruise with VF-41 that uh, was deployed to Bosnia aboard the Roosevelt. You, your uh, whole summer cruise was assigned to a fighter squadron? I was assigned to VF-41. I absolutely was. With Opie Honors as the nice. CEO. Uh, my running mate was Virus Baker. Um, guy, I mean, I remember all the department heads. There was, it was a, it was an action-packed summer cruise as a, as a, rising senior firstie at the Naval Academy, it, you couldn't have asked for anything better. Um, See, my, my, my rising senior summer cruise from, from ROTC, but we had, we had, you know, a lot of Academy guys was on the USS John F. Kennedy. 
Mm-hmm. But we were assigned to the ship, not to a squadron. So it would have been very cool to be uh, wow. to do a summer cruise in the squadron. Yeah, I, you know, and I feel so fortunate. Um, and you know, years later, of course, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're an academy graduate or not. We all, you know, right. ended up in the same spot. But uh, boy, that I was so lucky to be attached to 41 during that time when O'Grady was shot down in his F-16. Remember that period? That was that era. That uh, that summer, it was a remarkable time to see the Tomcat community beginning to flex. From that air-to-air supremacy role to the air-to-ground, uh, really realizing it needed to, to transition to become the the big strike and the little fighter, um, and uh, so I, I jumped into my uh, first year really enthusiastic about becoming a, a radar intercept officer. Got down to flight school, uh, and uh, boy, that was a transition from Annapolis down there. Joined the rest of my friends from all around, you know, from who who actually had a real college experience and uh, who helped us uh, enjoy and, and transition our lives to be to, to Pensacola. Um, it was a time when the A six Intruder was retiring. Uh, we had we had a lot of we had a lot of instructors who just left the Intruder community as BNs who were uh, who went to VT four, VT ten, VT eighty six um, as their final tours in the Navy and. Uh, so for us, the A6 was no longer a selection. It was now uh, P3s, S3s, E2s, uh, of course, the Tomcat, uh, and then uh, the E6. And uh, within a matter of months of primary, I was just inspired by the instructors that I had who were Tomcat Rios to pursue that path and uh, was fortunate through the grace of God, honestly, because um, I was certainly not a standout flight school student to be selected to, to, to fly the Tomcat. Um, and through that journey, met some just amazing Americans who today are still some of my best friends. And, uh, we all together moved to Oceana, uh, a remarkable time in the Tomcat community that we didn't appreciate at the time. It was yeah. this, it was 1998. The entire Tomcat community had just consolidated to Oceana from Miramar. And, uh, at the same time, the F-14 D community had shut down VF-124. And so VF-124 disappeared. Uh, that was the West Coast Replacement um, Squadron, for those that are not familiar. Consult, which then the training was all at VF-101, the Grim Reapers in Oceana. So the Grim Reapers absor- absorbed this F-14D thing that they had not been training in forever. It had always been a West Coast training squadron. And uh, we, as a, you know, as a class, um, were... We put our selections in for which platform we wanted. It was A, B, or D. And uh, for me, it was an easy choice. I wanted to fly the latest and the greatest, so I chose the D. Um, and there were all sorts of, you know, remember the, the, the reasons for choosing home porting, home basing, deployment schedules. It was complicated. And uh, I I am so glad I got chose for the D community because the D, the F-14D, as I say, bio and Crunch will pre- appreciate this because he's got time in it. Um, I'm a Naval Academy graduate. I was educated at the Naval Academy, but I was raised by the F-14D community. And uh, <laughs> I, really, I really do think that's true. And uh, the the cast of characters and legends and rock stars uh, that I, and I, I'm literally, I, I'm serious. I stand on their shoulders tonight uh, and my hat's off to all of them that helped get me to where I grew through the Tomcat community and as a, as a man in life. Um, so, I got uh, the the honor of selecting D's. Would ultimately uh, graduate the RAG and uh, move into the fleet in this in uh, 1998. Uh, and I moved through VF2, 
uh, moved through, uh, and then after VF2, went through the Top Gun course in the summer of 2002. Uh, and after that, uh, was assigned to the Strike Fighter Weapons School Atlantic, which is the, the uh, successor to Swatsland that I know you've talked about in previous episodes. After my Swizzle tour in 05, I had the great honor to be one of the last, the last Tomcat training officer, uh, along with Supa Fanley in VF31 in uh, 2005 and 6. Uh, when we, I left, went to the Air Force Staff College, the Tomcat community had its sunset in 06. Um, I would then come back, moved on into the Super Hornet in a legacy uh, F-14D squadron, the Black Alliance of VFA-213, uh, made another deployment. And then uh, the rest of my, uh, my career was spent with JSOC uh, and then instructor of the Naval Academy and then retired in 2017. And here I am talking about that great period of life with you great Americans. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I tell you what, man, that was a, your, your career has, you've, I mean, you and I shared a bit of, a bit of sea time together yeah. in uh, CAG eight when you were in 31 as a training officer, I was at two thirteen. Uh, we were next. I was. We were in what ready seven. You were in ready eight. You know, we were. We were all flying together. We had a great time over there. But I tell you what. Aside from that, your career is like so much more different than mine. Yeah. <laughs> all the different things you've done. You know, I'm like no I better. fly airplanes, and you like go out and do stuff. <laughs> you no know, better. it's so much different. It's great. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but hey, we're here to talk about. The F-14D yeah. and your experiences there. Uh, so we, we've we already had Jungle Jones, who you know. Right. You know, we've had Jungle on and he talked about the D from the pilot's perspective. Um, now, there's some great things from the pilot's point of view. Uh, you know, I have some, some D time. You know, the big engines, you got the earths to play with. The displays are awesome. Let's be honest. There's an awful lot in the back seat that is really cool on the F-14D. Give us the, you know, the... what. Give us the impression. What do you got? Not just the radar, but everything that comes to yeah, we'll, comes to mind. We'll break it out from the A. You know, how did it yeah. improve on the A? Yeah, uh, Bio, that's a great way to, to help me answer the question. I've thought a lot about this. Um, I'll tell you what, the, what separates the Delta from the A and the B was data integration and fusion. And the, the, the information fusion that occurred in the front and back seat and across the seats um, really differentiated the, the platform. So the sensors See, that were added. Those, yeah. those terms were not even in our <laughs> minds back then. <laughs> you know, and, and that's great, Bob, because as Crunch was laying out the things you like you wanted to talk about, I'm like, oh, crap, I wish I had saved a confidential sup because that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? You know, I know, right? I'm like, who knows where that thing's went. Just, things- just show it real quick. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think really the what made the F-14D really special, um, besides the, the maintainers that made it sing, that made the magic work, and the operators that, that really um, perfected the employment of all of the sensors, uh, what, what, what made it different was the how the sensors were integrated and how technology back in the early 90s began to allow us to do this. You know, you had the APG-71 replacing the AUG-9. You had the IRST, the IRST, the infrared search track system that added this counter electronic attack system in a very infantile way uh, that became fully integrated. You had the Joint Tactical Information Distribution System, which was a data link replacing the older Link 4 that was a 
generation leap in data exchange between aircraft. You had the legacy television camera system, TCS, integrated into the fold. And then you begin to layer in other things that we we realized we needed to add that your other guests have mentioned or, or, or spoken, you know, ad nauseum. Lantern integrated into the into the the data set that you know that the information exchange. You had things like tarps integrated in. You had really niche systems like fast tactical imagery. You had things like um, tarps IR tarp that you had digital tarps. You then had rover integrated in the last deployment. So uh, uh, really. Bio, what I'll say is, as I begin- This is making me sad for the Tomcat community because they only made 55 of these beauties. Yeah, exactly. and- you know, and but they made 55, but those 55 hummed to the very end. And Crunch yeah. and I remember that in two, that, that deployment in 05 and 06 at Cagate with Cy Sizemore as the last Tomcat Airwing commander. Man, that was, a, that was an amazing deployment where it was, there was nothing more powerful and no better tribute to 40 years of Tomcat, amaz- uh, the amazing contribution of the Tomcat community, then seeing 22 up F-14Ds flying off the, the TR back to uh, NAS Oceana, all in an up condition, able to land. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the struggle. That's impressive. That is impressive. Yeah. It, you know what's you know what's fun about that fun is when when you can look at that picture of that last flyover and I know you do this just like I do is you look up and you go I'm in that one right there right right that's I, right. I was with Charlie, with Charlie Brown who was uh, one of our our DHs in the trail aircraft the photo aircraft and the alignment aircraft um, so yeah I do that too that was a special time and bio sort of you know to move before I move to the next question to answer the quest to answer your question of what made it special it was. It represented the greatest aspects of the entire F-14 community from the previous 40 years that culminated in a very, an exceptionally combat capable aircraft on the, in the air to ground mission and the air to air, in the air to air mission that integrated technology until the very bitter end in order to support our forces on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. So let's dig into some of the details then. So uh, a lot of our audience really likes the details. Um, Let's talk about the APG-71. Yeah. Compare and contrast to the AUG-9. Let's talk about all all the details, like radar modes. Yeah, start with the radar modes. Where it came from, all sorts of stuff like that. You know, again, boy, you guys have taxed my memory trying to go back and dig this out of the vault from many years ago. (laughs) Um, You know, here, bottom line, APG-71, what made it special? Um, it took the AUG-9, which was an exceptional system for its time, and it improved it in every capab- in every aspect, whether it was electronic attack, whether it was um, multi-modes, um, whether it was processing power, whether it was mode agility, um, whether it was functionality for the pilot. Um, it really, it, the APG-71 leveraged the Air Force development of the APG-70 for the F-15 uh, program, and it, it tomcatized it. And uh, the, what resulted was a, um, a very capable, long-range search detect uh, radar compatible with the Phoenix, compatible with the AMRAM, um, compatible for w- which was upgradable for future technology. Um, and importantly, gave, it really improved the AUG-9's ability to, um, to counter electronic attack. And in the F-14D, provided with the data bus, the 1553 data bus, 
allowed the, the pilot and the Rio to interoperate the radar in ways the AUG-9 could never be. So you bring up a good point. We ta- used to talk a lot about the 1553 data bus. And that's a piece, that's, basically that's the digital spine of the airplane that allows everything to communicate. Like you were saying, whereas that data fusion, that's what allowed that to happen. And that was a piece of equipment, that data bus, didn't exist in the A in the B. No. It was only there in the in, in the F fourteen D. And I remember it I remember people would talk about that. I'm like, well, what's so important about this? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it hits me one time, like, oh, look at this. Everything talks to each other and it works. And it's just like you said, that was probably, you know, that I didn't even have that in my list of things that we wanted to talk about today. I'm so glad you brought it up because I had forgotten that that was like one of the most important parts. Well, for the nerds out there, like all Tom you know, F fourteen D Rios are. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the uh, I, I love comparing the F-14A and the F-14D, just like you'd compare um, the, the Grumman's Apollo module that landed on the moon to um, the IBM, you know, 286 computers in the 1990s. I mean, the, that was a huge leap in technology, and that really is what drove the the leap from the F-14A and B, the AUG-9 weapon system, to the, uh, yeah. the APG-71 based. Mission computer, which were remember crunch, we had two IBM two eighty six, you know, compatible computers that drove the that drove that data bus. It was that computing power that allowed all of that data fusion and integration. Um, that would be a, a really, I mean, it, it was a monumental way to segue from the AUG nine to the Super Hornet that we're now flying today, and the data integration and fusion that occurs there. Well, and, yeah. and if viewers, okay, and, I, and I'm going to go to over radar modes in just a second, but if, if people are watching and they're going, oh, a 286, that's all you had? Yeah. Well, they ought to remember one thing. The AUG-9 was designed in the 1960s, mm-hmm. you know, years before the probably the 8086 was even imagined. Yeah. And it had a little magnetic tape read-in, and, and I, I used to know that's how many right. lines of code it had, and just, but it was an incredibly primitive computer. I, so, had, I think it had two lines of code. There was this air-to-air <laughs> line of code, and there was the air-to-ground line of code. <laughs> and okay, it was just so, one big line. <laughs> okay, so the AUG-9 had pulse search, mm-hmm. PD search, and track while scan. It had range while scan, but I don't know anybody that ever used it. So those were the three main modes, and then pulse search and PD search could go to STT. Yeah. So is that what the APG-71 had, or... And how did MPRF? Let's. I'm going to bring out the MPRF question. Yeah. So, answer, so let's go over the modes and then bring in MPRF. Yeah. You know the answer is yes. And you know before we talk about the beeps and squeaks, let me talk. Let me mention the people that made this happen because there. And this is important for a reason. The guys that and it's you know just was happened to be a bunch of of, of, of guys back then. Stewie Stewart um, and a number of other key figures built the F-14D program in concept with, um, you know, the program office and, and put the requirements together for it. And one of them was to build the APG-71 weapon system in the image of the AUG-9 system so that the operating the operators could move between one to the other. And uh, the idea was the community was used to was used to a track wall scan, pulse Doppler search, pulse search, and like you said, even a range wall search option. Let's tra- let's take that. Let's let's modernize it in a way that Hughes Hughes radar could that they were doing for the Eagle program 
and let's tomcatize it and move it into the and move it into the F14D. So those people, again, I'm standing on their shoulders here, and I hope Stewie's watching this because he ended up being my first skipper. I have so much respect for him and what he did to to launch the F14D program back in the day. And it was great that you know I, I didn't appreciate his contribution. And there were others, whether it's Grumpy Kimberly. Um, my gosh, I'm beginning to blank on some of the names, but the, all the folks who um, it only gets worse. Yeah, right. And and so all these people who who, who influenced the operational test design of the uh, of the whole APG seventy one operating system over 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 years. So trackwall scan was the core weapons employment function of the APG seventy one. It had the same modes. Um, you know, it, it had a 65, 40, 20, 10 degree, um, and then in terms of the the antenna scan, and then a one, two, four, and eight bar design for the the, the scanning. What the APG seventy one did is it uh, what it added was which was significant was a medium PRF capability. PRF meaning a pulse repetition frequency, um, and the as a an F fourteen D youngster, I took this for granted until I began to fly the F fourteen A, which was only a high and low PRF mode aircraft, and and, and we won't, we'll get to the displays next, but in terms of just the processing abilities of the APG-71, what it, what it fixed, I shouldn't say fixed, it, what it improved on over the AUG-9 was a all-aspect uh, capability system um, and in multi-mode capability, particularly in an electronic attack environment. So where the AUG-9 was a high or low PRF for a high rate, high velocity you know, high rate of closure versus a receding target. What what the APG seventy one added was medium PRF, which was an ideal medium range mode for all aspect detection. And it interleaves okay. that. And it the interleaves. Okay, so you, say, you say it's a medium range mode. Yeah. But it was M did the Rio select MPRF? Did did because the modes, I mean when you in the AUG nine, when you say low PRF, you're talking pulse. Right. When you say high PRF, you're talking PD and track while scan. The beauty and then I've looked at, at my Hughes radar book that I have back there, Introduction to Airborne Radar, and it says the statement, medium PRF is actually not the numerical value of the PRF. It is a term that refers to the processing of radar hmm. signals. Hmm. That's an unclassified book. Okay. This is okay. The, so you so you're talking about medium PRF modes. Mm -hmm. Did the radar automatically do that? Did the Rio push a medium? Yeah, and I've mean, I've been looking forward to saying this for about 15 years. The Top Gun recommendation is to run the APG 71 yes. in an interleave trackwall scan, uh, 40 degree two bar mode. So so did you did you select interleaved? You did. Or was, was that default on the on the Rio's? Um, we call it the DD panel, the digital display. There were three options, high, interleave, um, and and medium PRF. Now, the I believe it was interleave, high, medium, interleave. Interleave allowed the system to alternate between a high PRF and a medium PRF scan. And that meant in the entire scan volume was sanitized in both a high and medium PRF. And Excellent. obviously, trackwall scan is not a low PRF mode. So if you needed that, you could just roll right to a, 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 a pulse search mode. Okay. Man, yeah. fun. You just, you just answered that's a big <laughs> fundamental question. That's good. Thanks. I am digging deep in the vault up here. I mean, this is... 
Hey, Crunch, uh, do you have anything else? I'm good. You know, it's- you know I, uh, I'm just sitting back enjoying the show. I'm, this is, uh, this is why we, we called fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I appreciate that. Cause I could talk about this stuff for hours. Apparently the, uh, the so, thing- so what our what our what our listeners don't realize is that when uh, when I showed up in the D community, I already had a couple thousand hours, fifteen hundred hours flying something else, right? And uh, and I showed up and I'm like, hey, finger guns, I'm here, I'm ha- happy to fly this new fangled airplane with the big motors, you know. And here's fun, and he's like, he's like, hey, there's this JTIDs and all this stuff. I'm like, all right, well. Man, it's kind of confusing. Is there uh, what? Is anybody know about this stuff? And and fun would like hand you this big giant folder of frequently asked questions, which was all colored like blue and red and and all sorts of stuff. And it was page after page after page of just wisdom. And it was I was like, dang, there's some <laughs> good stuff in there. And I, 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 it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, I had no idea there was so much to know about this airplane. So that. I just remember that you had like the Bible that you wrote and it was just like your notes, right? I, I do recall that. It was called Frequently Asked Questions. And it started with like that one, two, three questions. And I realized that Confidential Sup and all our pubs didn't, it, they didn't cover anything that we really wanted to know about this one system in the F-14D. Okay, so, okay, so just let me tell you, I mean, I did not write the FAQs and, and hats off to you for doing that because that, that sounds like an excellent, I mean, a great thing to do and a great initiative. But when I was a new JO in 1981 in my first squadron, there were certain elements of the A that people just didn't understand and they just were like, I, I don't, I think it, they just didn't care. And some of them were explained in the confidential supplement. And this pilot I was flying with, he and I said, let's become smart on these. I mean, one of them was the damn ALE 39, Chaff yeah. and Flare Dispenser. Yeah. Yeah. People right. just hit, nobody cared about it because everybody was interested in, you know, the sexy, you know, missiles and stuff. Anyway, so so th- there's always stuff about the Tomcat that they didn't have time to teach you at the RAG or maybe you didn't. Anyway, so... But fun, good, good on you for for uh, figuring it out and writing the FAQs. That's cool. Obviously, <laughs> you helped at least one guy. I mean, I, right? And at least one person read it. That you know, to be honest, <laughs> you know, that was uh, boy. That uh, when I got to the weapons school, this is back in two thousand two. Um, you know, the Super Hornet was the all the rage. A lot of effort being put into into advanced transitioning all of the F-18 legacy communities' knowledge to that community, especially since the B squadrons were in the A squad, the Tomcat A squadrons were all transitioning to that platform too. So I got put into the, become the the F-14D system SME for the remaining two squadrons. It was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was an opportunity bio, more than anything else, to take ownership of the Link 16 program that the Super Hornet community and the Hornet community didn't know anything about. And so I just, and this is under the leadership of, really, of uh, Dan Redgate, who was the weapons school uh, CEO at the time. He saw the writing on the wall. And I think Puck Howe was there too, who was a D guy. They saw, they were just like, hey, fun, you know a little bit about this. Go take this program, run with it, make some magic happen, figure it out and see what we need to do. And uh, it was it was 2002. The attacks on 9-11 had just happened. Um we were so behind in integrating 
NAS Oceana and our Tomcats and our Hornets into the national, the, the data link infrastructure that we were building to protect the country against a, an attack on the homeland that we, you know, thank goodness never came. But Oh, yeah, but everybody thought it like could be next right. week, yeah. So all that stuff was it existed, and uh, as a weapons school instructor, it was a real honor to to get involved in all that, and then integrate the F four the F eighteen community based on all the lessons learned from the F fourteen community. And that oh, that's is good. That's good. Okay, so so Crunch made this comment uh, when we were comparing notes, getting ready for this. He said the WRAs were reduced in half, right, for the APG seventy one. Was that kind of something that you learned also? I mean, is that a pretty accurate statement? And did you guys have really good availability you know, for the I, 71? I, so I have, I, I've read that. Um, that certainly wasn't something that as a JO um, I was ever in tune with. Um, you know, it's not like you're dealing with, uh, you know, a, a WRS on a daily basis. However, oh, yeah. you, you became pretty astute with uh, the troubleshooting involved. And um, while WRAs were reduced – um, okay. I think troubleshooting the APG seventy one was a lot easier than the AUG nine. It could uh, the bits you could run were a lot more um, it, they were a lot more effective. So I think the yeah then the random stuff you would do at the AUG nine. Um, but the uh, so I think for the from the maintainer's perspective, um, maintaining the APG seventy one while it was still a lot of work was a lot easier yeah. than the AUG nine. Okay, that's yeah. good. So if I can interrupt real quick, uh, WRA, uh, refresh me, weapons, weapons replacement assembly? Repla- weapons replaceable assembly. assembly. Right. It's a black box that they plug out. and Basically little computers. Right. Right? Exactly. All right. Yeah, and but so in, you the, had- uh, in the AUG-9, they were more like little hamster wheels with, uh, right. with you know, with uh, brushes and copper wire and stuff like that. Fair enough. So you had, like, so in... So you had, I think, let's, I hate to make up a number, but I think there was, yeah, there was a whole bunch of WRAs, meaning little computers for an AUG-9. Yeah. The system was analog. When they uploaded the software, they had to load in a tape, just like in the 1970s or 80s, whenever you were playing a video game at home, you have to put the cassette in and load it. That's how they loaded the the software. Um, Shoot, you had to do that every time you flew, right? I mean, it was... It would sit there and take a while to load. Nope. Well, I mean, you didn't have to feed it in, but it well, took a while pushed, to read into the Yeah, you pushed memory. the button and it took, yeah. Boop, 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 yeah. How long did it take in the AUG-9? I don't even remember because it was just yeah. part of the startup sequence. Right. But if you, if APG-71, you it, the, 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 the D didn't, it was, everything was fast. It was digital. Oh, all right? right. It took us, you little, know, yeah. and you have fewer WRAs, the, everything's solid state, right? So it, it just, it doesn't break. It's more reliable. It's fewer, th- fewer parts. You also mentioned... Bits. What's running a bit? Oh, built-in test. Pretend, mean, pretend you, I'm a pilot who sits in the front who never actually ran a bit in his life. Fun. Did you guys fly, have fly catchers? We, did, we didn't have fly catchers in the sense the AUG-9 did. We did have, as we started the jet, Crunch will remember this, I believe it was called OBC. Yeah, which onboard, was, yeah checkout. onboard checkout. Onboard yeah. checkout. Was, there, was that on the AUG-9 as well? Yeah, um, yeah. And we had okay. Thank, thank you. Uh, they, uh, we. I don't think we had fly catchers per se. We had them. I okay. Think we, used them, we used them differently. Um, okay. So let's answer the bit question. The bit question is: there's like they were like eight bits. They were called built-in tests, and they tested right. different thing. One tested the antenna, for example, right. and some of them were short and some of them were long. Once one of them tested the transmitter, bit three. 
and some of them set thresholds. So if you're going, I mean, it's so fun. Tell me if this was like this in the, in 71, we used to always run, be sure you run like bit three or whatever it was. Be sure you run this at the start of the flight. As soon as you get airborne, you had to do it airborne because the transmitter couldn't operate on the ground and that would set thresholds and stuff. And then you'd run them at the end of the flight and write down all this crap until maintenance. So did you guys do that with bits? Bio, because you guys did that for 30 years before us. No, we didn't have to. That was built into the software. So what <laughs> <laughs> we did, uh, you know, we did. Oh, so you, so you I guys did. had time to take a nap when you're going home. I mean, yeah. I'm back there. Hardly that. I was No, not at all, sir. Um, I was re- resetting years with, uh, with circuit breakers and doing all sorts of other craziness. But I'll tell you, we did have uh, bits and we um, – we this was we it was driven by two IBM two eighty six equivalent computers. We would fly. We flew with a a bit book that was I, remember, yeah. I recall it being a little yeah two inch by four inch thing, a lot like yours in the in the. I A-way. have one, yeah. And it was it was a series of bits that you could run based on the the system issue that you had, typically with the the APG seventy one, um, sometimes with the others, and it would give you a result, and it would. Light debrief maintenance better. Oh my gosh, look at that right there. Look at that. So the folks on audio only right now, Bio is holding up this old bit book. You got to go to YouTube and see this thing. That's this incredible. Is that that is about to fall. This apart. was the new one, nineteen ninety seven. I've got one from the nineteen eighties back in my other bag. Right. So it's but it's see. got you, you get these codes and it says no transmitter on signal. Right. And then it tells you to run all this other stuff and you and then you tell that to the AQs which used to be AQs, then they became AEs. And they could go, oh, if you have that problem, you're supposed to change this, you know? And I mean, this was just, uh, yeah. Okay. We used every system, every WRA and the, and the F-14D was, you know, had equivalent bits as well. And so whether it was JTIDs, the Earth, the TCS, all of it was driven by the data bus. So you oh, could- Oh, that's new. You we could did. troubleshoot anything. And it wasn't necessarily troubleshooting. You could run a bit- you could find out what an issue was with a system with that and then come back and debrief maintenance. The APG-71, probably like the AUG-9, was either it, – it, it either – I hate to say it either worked or it didn't work. Um, yeah. it, either, no, it either full up worked, it worked without STTs working, or it didn't work. And I think that was just innate, the nature of the, you know, the, high, the, the actuated antenna and the, a, the age of the aircraft, that STT functionality seemed to be the most, <laughs> the most temperamental of any. Yeah, of the we had those. Ever. We had those. Okay. I want to ask two more questions, Crunch, about the radar. And yeah. Fun. Yeah. You, I don't know if these will be, these will be kind of short, hopefully. And then we'll move on to the other systems because I want to know about Earth also. Like, okay, one. The AUG-9, even in uh, track wall scan, which was good overland, and I mean, the, the uh, philosophy on radar modes also changed over time. I saw it, uh, but the, the AUG-9 would show false targets overland in track wall scan. Not a lot, but often enough that if you saw a target in track wall scan, you had to evaluate it. So did the APG-71 present false targets? Oh, so maybe that goes back to the interleave thing. Did, but did you guys have false targets in your PD mode, in track wall scan? The answer is a lot less. So the radar was All designed right. with a reduced side lobe, um, kind of like spill out, spill over. Yeah. And those side lobes in AUG-9 were what caused all that those false tracks. And so the APG-71 by design reduced the side Good. lobe energy. Uh, and the interleave, the medium PRF functionality... Um, just gave up and the better processing power 
um, just it reduced all those a lot more of those false tracks. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to I've talked to F fifteen pilots, and they said if they see something on the radar, it's there. Oh, absolutely. You know? And you know, so that's F fifteen. Right. The, the the nice thing with the AUG-9, though, bio, is that, and to your great credit, is that Rio's back, and I learned this in Top Gun, like, oh, my gosh, the, being a, a AUG-9 Rio was work. I mean, you were running that B-scope, which was a, for those who don't know, it was a negative return on a positive display. Uh, you could literally tune the gain, the fidelity. I mean, you were able to control all of the physical features of that right. radar. The APG-71 added that added the digital flavor to that system. And like you know, with anything that transitions analog to digital, you lose control over the functionality. You give it to the computer. And so the, the, the APG-71 had a digital display. Everything was processed. There was less that you could do to manipulate the actual system. And the Top Gun recommendations generally were to leave everything in the computer detent. So you would basically, you would leave it into the APG-71's hands, there were very few things that you would want to do to manipulate the radar. So it, uh, and look at today, we're dealing with the the phase array, ESA radar and the Super Hornets. I mean, you don't touch a thing, you know? Yeah. And that's great and wonderful when it's working. Um, You know, you just, we we forget where where we have come from and that not 40, 50 years ago, it was, uh, you know, folks like you who were, Back there, tuning the dials, making it work. Well, and I had, you know, I had the giants whose uh, shoulders I stood on, you know, Tom Hyatt, Darth Kane, those guys who were my rag instructors and my mentors in the squadron. Okay, one last question then. Pulse Search. Did you guys ever use Pulse Search Overland? So Pulse Search was really not, I mean, Pulse Search was, it was like a, it was a novelty to be quite honest. But um, it wasn't needed. With With range well search, medium PRF, you never needed Pulse Search. Um, range well search and medium PRF. I would run around in 65 four bar and you would see everything when, when you right. tuned it well. So right. now we, we only use pulse search in the air to ground mapping mode. In the later D, the F14D tapes, we had a ground map mode that Crunch will remember that was, you know, it was a synth, it was not a synthetic aperture radar. It had like a, you know, you'd see things the size of a school bus maybe or a building, but it was, it was the precursor to today's high fidelity ground search mapping radar. So that was a pulse search mode system with high processing required. Right. But right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Used, yeah. We never used pulse search like you guys did. Uh, on air a to air, right. Yeah. Fun man. What a great overview and com- of the D of the 71. I mean, and comparing it to the Og nine, that is awesome. It's a walk down memory lane for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, it's but it's also just a, a you know a, a just a case study of what technology and continuous improvement can do. And like the guys you said uh, who who made the the uh, seventy one and the D. You know, okay, but we got all these other cool systems. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the Erst. Yeah. All right. So the Erst IR search and track. Right. So what is it, and why is it so cool? Why did we care? Infrared search track. Um, it is a uh, you know an an infrared sensor infused in with the the, the APG seventy one and the weapon system that allowed the Tomcat to have a a, 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 a denied attack capability. Meaning, the APG seventy one's radar could be electronically attacked, denied a a range target, and the Erst could 
could thermally detect an airborne track at, you know, probably up to 200, maybe 300 miles, could correlate it um, with the APG-71, allowing us to do a, uh, you know, a, a, a missile attack on a, on a range unknown target with a, with a Phoenix missile. That was the whole idea behind the IRST. Um, so it was a electronic attack uh, dream for to to comp to to take a, you know to, to kind of mitigate the challenges the AUG nine had in that environment. Yeah, and as I recall, you know you could do uh, an, a, a, a track while scan mode on the Earth. Mm-hmm. You could track those targets. You, you would you would basically. Ooh, I just moved my microphone. Probably made some noise there, but it could be, track those targets. Basically, take an STT on them, and if if memory serves. Um, if you had a couple of targets, you could take an offset and as you generated the range, it could calculate a rough estimate of the range for that, for that IR track. Correct. Do I have that right? You do. I remember that too. That was, uh, it was a series of like to gimbal left and right turns. Um, and it would, it would use that, that, uh, the shift of the, uh, of that IR track and then predict it on the APG 71 on the, on the TID and our TSD that you recall the pilots would use. And then you'd have yeah. that, you'd have a range undefined track become a, a rough range track where you could, uh, you know, you could lob an active Phoenix missile into. So how is the symbology? Did you as a Rio, uh, did, did an Erst target? I mean, because, because a great radar track is totally different than what you just said, a calculated range. Right off of an IR. Right. Did, did you have a very clear uh, designation of what's what? So. Yeah. So the, from what I recall on the, so we had a, we had two different displays. We had the TID, which we all Tomcat Rios remember. Um, the pilots in the F-14D had the TSD, the tactical situation split. The symbology was virtually the same. Although I'll say the TSD allowed the pilot to manipulate so many of the um, IRST link JTIDS link 16 and some of the APG 71 modes, the radar, uh, the track, the, the, the symbology was exactly the same as the AUG nine. Um, okay. IRST would overlay a, uh, a track at approximately a third, um, uh, call it like, you know, a range third of your range scale on the TID. And it yeah. gave you, I think it was like, uh, it looks something like a letter K. I can't exactly recall it or I'd turn to my confidential sub. And it basically implied that there is a, a range undefined IR track and you could, All right, cool. you could correlate it at, at, if you had a radar track and then the earth and the earth was there. The APG 71 weapon system though would do that by itself. It would correlate same bearing um, on a radar track. And then it would, it would tie those two. It would tie those two together. Fuse adding link 16, you could, from the E2 linking that same track, it would create a box. And the box right. with a velocity vector implied, you know, a complete track, just like the Link 4 days. So the uh, the, the, er, the IRST gave you confidence in a track. And in an electronic attack denied environment, it gave you sometimes the only SA. Um, sure. And then sometimes, you know, you had really proficient pilots with you who would race the Rio to find a, a target out there particularly in a turn or out of the notch. And the, you, grew, you grew pretty proficient with that too. That's right. And the other thing that it allowed you to do is like you might ha- on your radar be looking at a group and a group has a certain number of 
tracks within a certain number of airplanes. So airplanes in close formation, you may not be able to break them out on the radar because they're within that resolution, right? Uh, whereas on the Erst, a lot of times you'd be able to break out the raid count on that group right? and say, ooh, eyeball two, whereas on the radar, you're only seeing one, yeah, right? So, so you might actually be able to break those two out and say, ah, eyeball two, and then you can sort between your wingman and you, or basically be prepared to lob one missile in there and know that you're going to have one, one live guy coming at you afterwards. So yeah, yeah, that, was, neat stuff. that was, a, that was, that was exactly right. And if you recall, um, range wall search on the APG 71 allowed you a pretty good raid count too, um, where crack wall mm. scan sometimes didn't. So it was that agility between range wall search, track wall scan, erst track wall scan all together yeah. that really allowed you to, to break out count in a group. That's right. That's right. And now, could you shoot? You said that you could shoot on an Erst only track. Is that right? With an AIM 54, but not an AIM 7. I, I believe so, only because AIM 7 yeah. didn't have an active mode. Um, and I really right. think in range unknown shot with a, with a Phoenix, I mean, it, it yeah, had but, to be an active only mode shot. Yeah. No, no, no. By the time, no, no, you, no, because I remember that. Because when I was at Top Gun, one of the things that we taught was how to uh, enter a range. Mm. I don't want to talk too much more, but the Phoenix knows it it can take off on a profile based on an estimated range, but it does not come off active. Got it. So, yeah. okay, you're talking about something that I, I, I'm like, ooh, there's some cobwebs in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going... Yeah, but the door just shut. I lost it. <laughs> well, okay, so so fun, so great stuff. So we're talking about we've got the APG seventy one, we got the Erst. Everything's linking through the uh, you know might have a TCS track. Everything's talking through the fifteen fifty three data bus, and maybe you employ a missile and bang. Let's bring JTIDS into the picture. What is JTIDS? What does it bring to the fight? You know, JTIDS brought uh, to the Tomcat community. Um, I would say, yeah, it's it's not just link four times four for the uh, the older <laughs> Tomcat crowd. Um, it brought it brought global situational awareness when it was pumped into the network. And what JTIDS brought was a secure line of sight uh, uh, it, it targeting um, th- threat exchange capability to the F-14D that in the mid late 90s was cutting edge. Well, it's still incredible today. Exactly. I mean, when you think about it. Exactly. So, so, so we talk, You just mentioned something. You got Link Four. We're talking Link Sixteen. There's also Link Eleven. Yeah. Can you give us a, a stop me if if I'm like, oh wow, I, I'm I'm sure I'm not. What's the difference between Link Four, Link Eleven, and Link Sixteen? Oh boy, this is okay. Good. We could talk about this for a while. Let me boil this down. So, Link Four is a low data rate, unsecure uh, uh, exchange of basic information between ship and aircraft or ship to ship. Um, mm-hmm. Look, think of the, you know, it is the 1970s and 1980s version of a data exchange. Um, link 11 is a higher data rate, a data link to share targeting information primarily between ships. Um, that is, you know, it, I think it's encrypted and it, it just allowed positioning information, threat information, um, it, but it did not allow anything uh, such as like weapons engagement of a track file. What Link 16 brought was a secure line of sight means for aircraft, ships, tanks, doesn't matter, anybody with a transmitter and receiver to exchange uh, targetable target quality 
information um, in, in a time slot allocated network that was time synced um, and also provided unique capabilities like a voice capability that other data links did not. So what JTIDs offered the Tomcat was not just a means to exchange fighter to fighter tracks. Um, today, those are weapons quality engagement tracks in the Super Hornet and the F-35. Uh, for us, it allowed us to exchange ground tracks where there was a threat in the ground, where an insurgent location was, where a tank was. And it allowed us to talk in a secure voice, not just on one channel, but two channels. So it gave the mm -hmm. Tomcat um, the ability to have four different radio systems, UHF-1, UHF-2, J-Voice Alpha, and J-Voice Bravo. And it was secure. So you and could was, say anything you wanted. It was secure. The system had was a... It, was it reliable and clear and effective and all that? Because early, early secure radio modes were not that good. So it, I found it to be... It was crystal clear voice. Um, and so the voice was was very clear. The the Really, the, the long-fall intent was the crypto uh, and sometimes the time synchronization. And if you yeah. recall, Crunch, we loaded two days of crypto. We loaded... That's we, right. Was I forgot crypto. about that. So we loaded zero or one, we called it. But it was really today's crypto and tomorrow's crypto so that it could move through Zulu rollover. And that's why... Which would occur when? Well, who when when would you... Right. Who knew when? <laughs> But uh, right, right. It would. It always happened in the middle right of your in the middle of your flight. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, so bio, I flew. You know, I'm here. I am in, in Top Gun. We're only in an F-14A. Um, I think they were VF-41 F-14As, and we're using Link Four. And I'm like, man, this is so reliable. It works all the time. <laughs> and uh, it's like you turn it on, and there you're exchanging fighter to fighter tracks. The F-14D and JTIDs was it's it was a much more complicated system because you had. Uh, line up the correct crypto. You had to line up the correct time. And remember, GPS was a brand new thing back in the 90s. You know, the idea of synchronizing to GPS Zulu time was, you know, mind-blowing back then. And that's what you began to do. So you, you be, just introduced more variables that obviously could lead to failure. But once you got everything lined up and you things began to hum, Link 16 gave a tremendous amount of situational awareness um, to not just you, but to anybody else in the network that could then see what you saw. Yeah. So okay, I'm, you bring up, go ahead, Crunch. Go ahead, Bio. Nope, you first. Well, I was going to say, you bring up an interesting point. You talk about the time sync. And I remember that there was a, there would be times where all of a sudden you would start to lose sync. Like you would start, like your voice, your voice transmissions start to get choppy. You were like, oh, we're dropping out of sync. Yeah. And somebody would have to send a, I can't remember what it's called. The data as time time chirp. What was it called on uh, on JTIDs? Uh, we well, you no, no. They would you, you would just send out a. a you're thinking about the, the Mickey on a half a Mickey. Yes, somebody would send a Mickey, and it'd either be one of the fighters or an E2 or the AWACS or something like that. Because we weren't always using GPS time, especially in the beginning. We would just use it whatever was locally. And whoever owned the time, it didn't have to be synced to GPS. If I set the, the the time sync and I sent the Mickey, bang, I set the network. And in theory, anybody who joined that network, as long as they had the time sync, you know, you could go all the way around the world with this, this network. If, if you just had somebody in between you, right. I mean, it was just a bad matter of that time sharing thing. Yeah. And that was the, and that was the advent of networks, network centric warfare. And, uh, those, those concepts, man, this is a, this is a, a blast in the past. Though we in Iraq crunch during that 2005 cruise, the last Tomcat deployment. If yeah. you recall, the the Overland Link 16 network was Zulu time. 
the ship's That's network, right. I believe maybe it was the one or the other. The ship's network was Zulu minus five. And the reason was because we couldn't have two closely close two network time references in close proximity. And so that those kind of those kind of nuances bio, they really make Link 16 a very challenging system to operate. But Big oh, picture. awesome! You know our re- our our weapon systems operators today flying these you know yeah. super hornets. They are doing amazing work in very complicated environments where this is they're 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 the words they use that you were, we wouldn't understand. I mean, they're oh, just. I, oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. They're, they're, yeah. so, okay, before we get too far away, I want to talk about the F fourteen A. Yeah. So, Crunch, yeah. do you want to come in or do you want to? Uh, to go over the F-14A. I was going to dig into the nerddom of network time references and, and time sinks and all sorts of stuff. And I was going to drag fun into this rabbit hole all the way down to oh, Alice's no. Wonderland. No, so you go ahead, Bio. Get us, recover us, bring us back well, to the surface. So you, you, when you went to Top Gun, you had what, 700 hours in the D maybe and no hours in the A, and then you're thrown into the A to go through Top Gun? Bio, let's put it this way. So I had two deployments under my belt um, go, in you know, the D. in the D I get That's a thousand into, hours. I get thrown into an A. Well, it wasn't that many. I think, it, I think it was a, it was a couple hundred, maybe it was 500 or 600 Old uh, days. Two deployments in a constellation, come back, get thrown into the A. Uh, my first couple flights are all air to air. My pilots, Mike Horn, call sign fog. And Mike fog was an F 14 B guy. Um, so we have a B guy and a D guy flying an A. What could go wrong? So we, uh, we have – our air-to-air flights are going okay, and uh, we get to our first air-to-ground flight, and I had no experience in the air-to-ground environment in the F-14A, such that when we execute this roll – we're carrying like two Mark 82s. We roll into the target uh, somewhere you know, at a Fallon, and my, all, I, all I hear Fog saying is like, I got no symbology. I got no, he's a, he's from Texas. I got no symbology. I'm like, what do I need to do back here? And I had never learned that there was actually a button you needed to press in the AUG-9 to transition the tape load from air to air to air to crowd. So we, he rolls off a target, no drop. And then we come back and we, we debrief. And I'm like, what, what, you know, what happened to the aircraft? I'm debriefing maintenance. Yeah. The air to ground mode didn't work. And fog turns to me and he's like, he's like, and he thought, he thought I was, you know, trying to read the tape. It took us the entire debrief for me to learn that there's actually an air to ground reading requirement for the F 14, a so bio. I had so much to learn about how the F 14, a worked. And, th- and that's not a quick thing because we used to sit there and that used to be one of those things where I'm reading in air to ground. <laughs> you had to basically announce that you're doing this because we are shifting at and this point. Five seconds later or whatever, eight, what, I, don't yeah. know, I don't even remember how many. And so but imagine yeah, my surprise being used to the data, you know, the fast update of the APG 71 system where there was no transition. It was a, it was a consistent, it was a, the pilot switched the HUD from air to air to air to ground. <laughs> But there was no mode, I believe, Crunch, you know, based on the weapons you were selecting. There was yeah, no – so in the for in me, boy, that blew my mind when I re- learned that there was actually the tape physically shifted <laughs> in the F-14A <laughs> to provide the air-to-ground capability. Welcome oh, to the goodness. 1960s. Yeah, right? But that was that was F-14 depreciation. But, you know, but you guys had uh, – yeah, I mean, you got through it, you know, and your pilot's flying with TF-30s and, uh, and well, you're using the AUG-9 and 
going through Top Gun. <laughs> well, not a few, it was bent then advanced a few flights to our one v one grad flight. We merged the Guard F sixteen, and uh, I know Fog's probably listening to this. And Fog, it's still one of my greatest memories of all of our Top Gun time together. All of a sudden, you know, we're we're in like a we're in a scissors, and it, it was a boom. The aircraft exploded around us, and I thought we were going to die. And all this, and I, and all I hear fog is saying is like, I got it. And we just had a compressor stall, and uh, like, I have never been through a compressor stall in my GEF one hundred and ten motors. I didn't know what that felt like. Um, we came back to debrief. We knocked it off. Came back to the to, to Fallon, and the guard pilot actually he actually had it on his hood. And I'd never seen that that you know the explosion of a of a oh TV you're kidding in the compressor yeah. That was uh, that was uh, F-14A appreciation flight number two. I didn't have that many uh, compressor stalls in my entire career in the A, so and I never had any that had explosive flames come out the front. I heard about them, but anyway, huh? Cool. Okay. Well, you guys made it. That's good. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So it made you appreciate the D. That's good. It it did. I mean, I mean, but that course, the course, as you know, boy, you know, it 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 was fundamentals. And the fundamentals, you know, transition anywhere. And uh, bringing those back to the F-14D made, it would make any Rio, any F-18 Super Hornet Wizzo a better operator, you know, because of all of the, the fundamentals that you focus on. Um, and it made me appreciate JTIDs, the Erst, you know, medium PRF, and all of those things as well. Oh, that's terrible, man. You couldn't, all those tools that would have helped you and those challenging, yeah, oh, well. So we were talking a whole bunch of good, good stuff there. Let's um, – so one of the things – let's circle back to JTIDs. There were a couple of things I wanted to talk about. We talked about the time sink and, and all that stuff. They were, now, they basically, it's almost like you would sh- share the data through the network. And basically, you had an allocated time slot that you could transmit and receive. Do I have that correct? Yeah. Um, the best way to compare JTIDs to you know communications we're used to today – your cell phone uses something called CDMA, Core Division Multiple Access. Um, what that allows is a high, it's a large number of operators to connect to a, you know, a wireless frequency-driven network and to communicate without using a time synchronization. Um, mm-hmm. So CDMA is used by a lot of is used by cell phone providers worldwide. What JTIDS uses, Link 16 uses, is something called time division multiple access. What that the difference is, is that each user is allotted time slots to drive their information so they can transmit and receive, meaning you need a time synchronization source. We're all going to use Zulu time, for example. And that allows me to, to share, I don't know, my location in time slot one and my weapons information in time slot 45. And you're going to do the same in time slot three and time slot 47. And bio is going to do it in different ones. So that's what TDMA is for link 16. The importance of that is that it adds a layer of security to it, meaning you not only need to be on the same crypto, which does the – because crypto drives our frequency hopping. Um, it also – you need to be on the same time sync, uh, the same time stamp in order to make that data exchange happen. So, it, so in a nutshell – JTIDs is a lot operates a lot like your cell phone does. It's just a lot more secure and can share um, information more reliably. You know what? It's, I never bothered to understand that. So thank you guys for explaining <laughs> that to me. And, and at the same time, there's a finite number of slots available. Correct. 
You know, in bio, you can find this all on page 10 to page 13 of the Frequently Asked Questions on Facebook. <laughs> I don't have my copy not in here. Library. Not in, library. Not in my library. So, That's online, so, right? No. So you can tell I actually did read Fun's Frequently Asked uh, Questions because a lot of this stuff is in there. And I'm like, Crunch, oh, yeah, you retain that stuff. Things I'm impressed. Things I'll never live down. Yeah. No, no. But that, well, the reason I remember this because it was such an impressive feat. You know, I say that and go, wow. I mean, think about it. I'm right now talking about things that I read in your little document that I didn't read it anywhere else. I read it in your, your document. Yeah, but for a, a Navy uh, JO lieutenant, whatever, to put together something like that. I mean, that's good. A lot of guys talk about it. Oh, somebody ought to, but you yeah. did it. So that's good. Good on you. <laughs> yeah. But but now, let, so you got a finite number of of time blocks. Right. Time At some point, you have too many people trying to get into the network to share their information, right? You could. What happened? No, this is, um, boy, this is the nerdiest stuff we're talking, we're going to talk about tonight. Um, You know, you, (laughs) you know. Uh, Well, we can stop if you want. I I I find this stuff fascinating. I'm going to tell Scott to remove all this anyway. So no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, you're not. (laughs) And I really don't care because I get, I've gotten, I got a lot of grief back then when I became the <laughs> jaded Smee for the uh, the Tomcat and the Super Hornet world because making it work took understanding these beeps and squeaks and uh, you know it and it really here's here's the here's what it came down to bio uh, making these very sophisticated data links um, combat relevant for the Tomcat yeah. and now the Super Hornet yeah. and the Joint Strike Fighter requires that our junior officers can speak to the, the network programmers out in China Lake. And for, and believe it or not, Crunch, I mean, all that, those, those frequently asked questions, my go-to sources were all of the, 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 the hundred pound brains over at a, out at China Lake at an organization called Naval Center for Tactical Systems Interoperability that literally wrote the code for our networks. And they would take yeah. the requirements for like, okay, like OIF was a great example. OIF had, three F-14D squadrons in the same patch of earth, plus a number of Strike Eagle squadrons, you know, you just, and you begin layering in all the, the, the JTIDs Link 16 users. Those guys collaborated with their Army, their Air Force counterparts, and developed a network that had 1,536 time slots. Write that one down. And they allocated all the time slots to the different platforms and all the different capabilities. And it is really difficult work to do all that that took understanding what the uh you know the capabilities in theater were what the different capabilities that each aircraft was going to use etc cetera, etc cetera. and it took junior officers who could speak the language who could come to the table and say our platform is going to need to do exchange this kind of information in the network and then that's right. where the that's where the magic you got to have operators involved and right, operators exactly. have to understand so yeah. absolutely and that was the sophistication that the the uh, the war in iraq really brought us to is you know th- these it, it taught the super hornet community that you can't just uh let the the developers uh and the network designers do this in a vacuum they've got to understand what the warfighters need yeah, yeah. okay did you guys carry lantern on every uh on every flight we did uh, uh, over yeah. in theater you was know it, was it the same pod we had we had lantern in the a model my final deployment and it was it was awesome bio by the time we got i got to the tomcat community 98 um, we began, I, not every Tomcat had, or D had a lantern, but by the time I left VF2 in 2002, 
I think enough of the legacy Tomcat squadrons had retired that there were enough lanterns to go around. And so um, the last, say, seven, eight years, the Tomcat community, Crunch, back me up on this, but you couldn't, you couldn't find a Tomcat without a lantern on it. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't that there was one for every airplane so much as there was one for every airplane that was on the roof yeah. and ready to go flying. Yeah. It, it, and so we would, they would have to move them around at times, if, as I recall, which was a bigger job than you would think, which makes sense. But I remember thinking that there were some airplanes that didn't have it, but I could be wrong. I mean, it was only the maintenance officer. What would I know? About <laughs> these things? You know, now we're going to talk about lantern in another episode. So we, and it's, I think yeah. it's coming up uh, shortly. It's scheduled to come in a few episodes after this one. So we don't need to go into detail on Lantern. But before I forget, yeah. did you guys do tarps also? We did tarps. Uh, we did. Oh, tarp- yeah. You were, t- you were saying there was a lot of other fast or other improvements of tarps or something yeah, like that. So in a nutshell, bio, we ran traditional tarps. We ran digital tarps. We ran tarps IR really until the tarps program ended, which ended a couple of years before the Tomcat community retired. So I don't okay. think we deployed with tarps in uh the, in the, the last deployment oh, i don't remember that um, okay we, we did deploy i mean but lantern by then in the in the f14d was providing the same level of imagery that that tarps wa- was and i'll tell you the the lantern integration in the f14d continued to evolve through the last tape load um and so there were some really sophisticated uh capabilities that lantern provided particularly with the rio interface um for example one of the things I missed when I transitioned to the Super Hornet was the ability to cue, it was called QDES. Crunch might remember this. QDES yes. was this ability where you could designate something on the ground in Lantern, you could move to something else, and then you could return to that point. That's an example of very operator-driven modifications to the F-14D's Lantern integration that the software developers were able to implement very rapidly into the last couple tape loads that really advanced that capability. And when I transitioned to the AT FLIR and the Super Hornet, I was really surprised that a number of these key user features that we we as Tomcat Rios had evolved with, had evolved uh, in the Tomcat, just weren't in the AT FLIR integration. So as I made that, uh, my 2008-9 VFA-213 deployment, Bio, I missed the lantern integration in the F-14D. It uh, gave a wider field of view. It gave more. The PTID was now the new digital display in the backseat. They replaced the TID. It gave a oh, better. Yeah, no, I had, we had PTIDs back in, uh, in yeah, 97. It a better, better picture. It, uh, yeah. it was just a much better interface than I think the AT FLIR initially was in that Super Hornet. Okay, so what about the rest of the Super Hornet? I mean, I, I'm not trying to... to totally trashed the Super Hornet because, I mean, that became the Navy's fighter. So I hope it was a decent airplane. But yeah. how about the radar and everything else? Was it good? Uh, oh, you know, here's how I compare it. And we all get asked this question. Um, okay, good. You know, the Super Hornet is a – the Super Hornet is the um, – the Super Hornet is a fantastic uh, air superior, you know, strike fighter. Um, it is a – it offers the – um, the, fa- the the detection capability that um, the, the APG-71 never could provide with the, the phased array radar. Um, okay. It offers the, um, the air-to-ground munitions flexibility that, the, that, that in terms of types of weapons that the Tomcat community dreamed of, it 
it um, it offers the electronic attack and protection, um, the data inter- that data exchange, the you know the data link exchange that the Tomcat community could never get to because of this. The, we couldn't upgrade the Tomcat anymore. What it suffers from though is that it's a subsonic fighter, in that it could never carry the payloads that the Tomcat could carry. Um, and uh, you're, you're and, not the first person to say that on this show. So right? let me just tell you. And I've I've heard that from others. So that was where I you really missed um, you missed the F-14D with the big motors and rolling up into Baghdad with three GB two thousand pound GBU thirty ones JDAM that were you know were were gonna we dropped with one pickle and you took out an entire you know presidential uh, guard compound in downtown Baghdad and and then returned to the ship safely. You couldn't do that in the Super Hornet. Um, and uh, never mind that we exited Iraq um, as a two ship of Tomcats um, at Mach 1.1, and, and our, our our Hornet brothers never even made it in the country because of bad weather. They couldn't climb over. So there were, yeah, there were limitations with the Super Hornet, but um, you know those are those are being are mitigated, I think, with their its advanced sensor technology and uh, the data link capability, and obviously now with the, its. Uh, it's it's partner the joint strike fighter um that has a lot of a lot of capability too very interesting answer thank you crunch we have a couple other questions yeah let's see here um i got a few left here um well let's rear cockpit layout yeah you mentioned a little bit i mean the dd versus the ddd there's a few things the buttons are different you got time in both. What, what, aside from a few of the buttons and the labels, how different is the backseat of the Crunch, D? When you say both, you mean the A and the D, or you mean the D and the Super Hornet? I meant the A and the D, but okay. yeah, sure. Let's talk about all of them. Oh, so boy, yeah. Why not? Oh, Cockpit layout, functionality. Yeah. 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 You know, here's the the differences. Let's talk A, B, and then D, and then D to the, the Super Hornet F. Um, the A, B... Big difference between A, B, and the D um, were the was the digital design of that allowed data entry. The cap panel of the F fourteen oh. of the Aug nine that was that roller wheel of mode selection in the back seat. It was like when I when I began to fly that bio in the Top Gun course, I'm like, I think we're gonna land on the moon tomorrow. I mean, this is like a <laughs> what's going on here? Like, hey, we're gonna you know go we're go for the moon and. Uh, it was, you know, row that thing around and push the button and like hope that the letters came up on the uh, the TID. Um, the the APG seventy that A4, was that was the future when it was new, man. I know. Well, the the, the F fourteen D took that and it rolled that into what we called the uh, oh, what is that called? The data entry unit was the. Um, DEU, I believe the DU on the. Oh yeah, I've heard of that DEU. It was just called the DU. It was just called the DU, right? It was above the Rio's right knee. And bio, this was a a literally a push button driven digital entry display where you could enter everything from coordinates to data, symbology, letters and numbers, anything that required letters and numbers, and data modes, and you could pull menus up. It was the Rio's interface with the aircraft. But it was also backed up with, um, you know, the, the the MFDs and our multifunctional displays were five by fives that allowed us to pull up on the we called it MFD three, 
Um, in the back seat, the pilot had MFD number one and MFD number two. And on the MFD number three, the Rio and the pilot could pull up the same displays. Whether it was the tactical situation display, I could pull up the I could pull up the lantern, I could pull up the weapons display, which was a aircraft overlay with show me what weapon stations were where. I could pull up OBC, I could pull up the bit page, anything. That was driven on MFD number three. That so you had the data entry panel, you had the MFD three, and then uh, uh, but where the F fourteen A and B had their D their DDD that negative display. We actually had the DD, and the digital display was the a digital processed image display that was your radar returns, but it was also where the Rio interfaced with the radar. And so that's where you spend all your time in the air-to-air environment operating the radar. But like I said, Top Gun's recommendations were generally to keep everything in the uh, in the inner in the in the uh, in the computer detent, uh, except in times of electronic attack or in times that you needed to uh, you know to change if the system wasn't working. So the the interface was all done in the DU, the um, the MFD number three, and the DD. And I also don't want to forget. And a lot of this could be in later tape modes. We had mission data loaders that allowed us to download data from a TAMPS machine, and we could begin to preset functionality in the aircraft, whether it was radar, whatever it was, all sorts of things, mostly for our weapon system. But that MDL became more important with um, GPS almanac information. With J- TAMP, with- before we get too far, TAMPS is a mission planning machine, right? Correct. The tactical was. tactical airborne mission planning system. Yeah, yeah TAMPS, right. TAMPS used a, a Unix code system. TAMPS didn't change since 1982, and so you'd bio, you'd be crushing it in an F-14B squadron in 2006. Except I was air to air most of my career. Right, so right. Other than that. Well, and in 2005 and six, Crunch remembers. I mean, in 2003, the invasion of Iraq was our. That's when we introduced JDAM to the F-14D. And that's when TAMPS became essential because you were because all those JDAM missions had to be worked up in the TAMPS machine, loaded on the MDL, correct? And you'd bring it out and you'd slug it in there. And sometimes guys would load up two of them, right? Right. Yeah, because you're like, this one's corrupted, right? And you, you, we're in. Let's go. Exactly. That was a new way of operating, and uh, that was a great segue to the Super Hornet, where you now carry you know flashcards of the same style information. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, the MDLs were a critical component. The TAMPS MDL interface drove the whole JDAM integration of the uh, of the aircraft. We could talk about the Super Hornet, you know, as well, unless you want to talk about something else. No, let's go to uh, combat in the in the uh, F-14D. Yeah. Give us one of your most memorable combat missions. Crunch, is that about a good place to go, you think? Yeah, I think so. Oh, boy. Um, You know, the. The one, the one that I've alluded to already, I'll go back to, and that was the uh, the invasion of Baghdad in two thousand three. Um, certainly, that was a unique time with three F fourteen. What squadron were you in? I was in. I was actually a weapons school instructor, augmenting VF two at the time. Wow, who so, was the skipper at the time? That was Boog? was it Boog Boog, Boog Dineni. Yeah, the great American. And then uh, I think Slim Whitson was was uh, just before him. Um, okay. so I am, uh, at the time I was a weapons school instructor and the Tomcat community was directed to install the, the F-14B community had just finished its JDM integration. The F-14D community was next in the hopper. And my job was to learn JDM GPS guided weapons 
and then move with the China Lake uh, Tomcat team out to the Lincoln, the, uh, the Roosevelt, and then the Constellation and install D03 Bravo uh, on VF31213 and then VF2's uh, F14Ds, and then teach the air crew how to employ JDAM. So D zero three Bravo is a tape designation. It is, and the, the F fourteen D's tape designations married the years they were released, and so yeah. we moved up to ultimately D zero five in two thousand five, okay. which would allow us to drop. Just letting the audience know what what D three is. Right. Okay, so, so you're out on the Lincoln. I'm out on the. I moved from the Link. I, I flew from uh, Virginia Beach. Joined the Roosevelt down in Rosie Roads. They were just finishing their Comp two X. Taught them how to integrate JDM in. Then moved, uh, and that was VFA 213, moved, flew up to Rota, caught a rotator out to the, uh, um, to the, uh, um, I think it was the, uh, Probably 31 on the Lincoln, caught 31 on the Lincoln, did the same integration software installation for them, and then moved to the Constellation and joined VF2 on the, on the, on the, on the Connie to do the same thing. My old squadron, Boog, was great with having me stay out there as well. Um, and so what I did was I was augmenting the squadron for the next two months during the invasion of Iraq. And so um, it was an awesome time to both um, integrate the squadron um, into the, you know, into my areas of expertise. We solved all the Link 16 challenges before the invasion. We solved all the JDAM integration training employment issues before the, before the actual invasion, the shock and off phase. And then came night one and two attacks. My, uh, I was on the the night two attack with Pace Passantrilli, uh, and he and I are in a, a four plane division strike into downtown Baghdad, supported by an EA six B Prowler. Um, and for those that were part of those first couple nights of the invasion, you know that it was a rolling start. There was no like go; it just kind of slowly kicked off. But there were also some terrible storms up to thirty five thousand feet, and so we in our Tomcats. Uh, we were able to, as we were approaching these storms, we're like, we're going to climb and keep climbing. And our, and our Hornet brothers decided that they could not climb over the over this weather with their JDAM loads. We had three GB31s. I believe they were carrying um, two GB31s each. And so they turned back to the ship, and we continued to climb up to 45,000 And a 31 feet. is a 1,000-pounder? or That's a 2,000-pound GPS-guided bomb, JDAM. So we carried three of these things. Three was an important number because we could carry four, but you couldn't carry four back to the ship. We had, right. And so three was allowed us to return to the ship like our, our Hornet brothers had to that night. So we climbed up to 45,000 feet. We, we, just, we, exchange, we, we exchange – well, they give us their priority – uh, targets. We retarget all of our JDAM to take out the, the top six targets. Because um, remember, we were going to carry six plus four. We we're going to carry ten weapons. Now we're down to six. So we reprogrammed all of our our JDAM. And wouldn't you know it? That's when my mission computer, um, one of them, begins to fail on me. That always always happens. I enter these coordinates, retarget, and all of a sudden the mission computer dies. And those F14D folks out there, remember, all your displays go dark, and you have to recycle the circuit breakers, push them back in, and then everything starts up again. But you have to re-enter all the data again because the the MDL has all the data from the original TAMPS load. No big deal. And so we're up at 45,000 feet. We're now, no big deal. He just added 20 minutes of work. We're now screaming towards Baghdad. We probably have about 15 minutes until TOT. 
um, when I would enter the whether the targets were all co-located, so we knew we were going to go. We had a waypoint in there. We coordinated the prowler, which was offset about maybe 60, 70 miles to support our ingress. But we're now two Tomcats, four JOs, alone and unafraid, who are the only aircraft over this approaching Baghdad this night because the storms were so bad. The prowler continued to support us. We're rolling up there. And about this time, we get the SA-2 indication on the nose. And so, okay, not surprised. Here it comes. Here it comes. Um, I, the mission computer crashes again. And I'm now cycling the computer again, re-enter the coordinates in. And that's when it dawns on me, wait a second, these JDAM, I'm, I'm the Tomcat JDAM SME. I, I realize, wait a second, these things were only tested up to 35,000 feet. We're now at 45,000 feet. What Maybe we should think about this. So I open up the manual. I, I literally have the manual release tables that China Lake had tested. They only go up to 35,000 feet. And that was important because these are battery-driven weapons, and the battery drives the GPS guidance system and the, and the fins. So you need to ensure that you're not going to deplete it of battery energy. So I am literally cycling breakers on mission computer number one. I am re-entering. I did this like a third time. I've got the manual release tables out as I'm ex- I'm extrapolating up to forty five thousand feet to make sure that the battery time, the time of fall, of the weapon will not exceed one hundred and nine seconds. And I will never forget that number because that was the maximum time of the FMU one thirty nine electrical fuse. Meanwhile, the SA two is looking at it, looking at the surveillance system is looking at us too. And we'd heard we'd heard VF thirty one stories about dodging and weaving around SAMs that were coming up like telephone poles. So we're ready for this, and we get we're in a an, a an offense. I think we're in an offensive combat spread approaching the target, and we now I look at this and I'm like these bombs are going to be flying for hundred and seven seconds down to that target. We're in there. I'm <laughs> like you think about that. These things are going to be falling for nearly two minutes towards their target. I'm like we're there. we're barely there, but we're going to do it. And so we. With a, the the system holds the SA two never goes active. It's we the the clouds part about twenty miles south of Baghdad and bio. It's the most surreal thing that you've ever seen, Amazing. and I'm sure there are thousands of attack aviators out there who have stories like this where there are the lights of Baghdad beneath us, and we left the lights on. There's AAA coming up everywhere, and uh, we have about. 10 seconds to go. And, you know, it was a quiet, eerie night. We're the only aircraft there. And I just give Pace the, hey, 10 seconds to release. Master arm comes on. You know, the bombs look good. Double check everything is is, is functioning. And i tell you what, that F-14D made me proud that night. You know, after uh, we entered the, the pizza slice of the lar right to the center, pickle, and it felt like it felt like three SUVs came off that, that, uh, that, that Tomcat. <laughs> And I've never, as soon as those three came off, I've never felt a more aggressive turn of my life. We both did a in-place turn, literally in-place turn. And we raced at about Mach 1.1. Let's get um, the hell out of here. It was a Saudi border and then join an Air Force tanker. And that was the, you know, it, it, although it, it was a pretty, it sounds like a casual flight, that, that flight stuck out because of just four JOs in the middle of, you know, a very- Enemy country. Enemy country with who knows what was going to come up. The Tomcat was doing the best she could to support us. We did a, we we troubleshot her. She worked. She she did what she needed to do. De- delivering a brand new capability 
you know, on the, in the, in the, in, as the, as the community was in its swan song, you know, it was just a beautiful night that just demonstrated. Right. All yeah, the that is things. incredible. What an incredible story. <laughs> so that was great. That was a good one. Wow. All right. We're not so, going to ask you to even top it. I mean, that is uh, like, uh, no, done. that's a great story. That's Walk it. Check. Came back for an okay. Three night trap yeah, and a slider. Yeah. Course pace. That's right. All right. So um, cool. Good stuff. Hey, so uh, what are you – tell us about the Tomcat in Annapolis. Yeah, so my last tour in the Navy, um, I had the a privilege of instructing at the Naval Academy, and I worked under uh, Slapshot Carter. Bio, you might you might know him. Uh, strike group yeah, I think he, he went through Top Gun when I was an instructor. Yeah, so he was a one. And he was good, man. He was good. He was also a 124 instructor uh, right. back in 84 and 85. So Yeah, that's that's when he did. So these worlds all collided in 2018, 2017. Um, I was uh, my final year at the Naval Academy running the Naval Aviation Training Recruiting Education effort. And uh, we were doing a number of things to inspire these young men and women to follow in our footsteps. Um, they all want to be Navy pilots, right? But very few of them even know what NFOs do. And so our challenge was to educate them and to help them different, you know, decide between the two communities and to put the NFO community in the best light. So more importantly is we're competing with the Marine Corps um, and the SEAL community and the EOD community. We needed to do more to show how awesome naval aviation is, not just the strike fighter community, but naval aviation in general. We approached Slapshot with the idea of adding two more aircraft to the Naval Academy and building a naval aviation uh, air park. And for the Academy graduates out there, you'll recall that the yard has always had a A4, uh, it's an A4A and an F4E. That A4A is the same model that John McCain was shot down in uh, back you know, some, in the 60s. The F4E um, is one of the later model uh, Phantoms. Uh, but both an of these E is an Air Force model. Um, you must mean a J. You must mean a J. It must mean the J. There must be the J then. So the, the J, but it's it's a it's a late model Phantom. Both aircraft okay. though are shells. There's nothing inside them at all, and they're in really they're in bad states of repair. So Slapshot liked the idea of adding two aircraft, and we didn't know what aircraft. It's not like we can go out and just find these things. So. What he agreed to was, let's go out and let's see what we can get, and we'll replace two with two. He could, he felt he could do that to not have to approach the Navy's memorial museum memorial committee, which was a, an, an essential thing if you're going to add things to the yard. So, we went to the Naval Aviation Museum of Pensacola, uh, and they were wonderful and pointed us pointed us immediately to a prowler that was decommissioned and gutted and, and sitting at Andrews Air Force Base, just down the road in, uh, yeah. in, in the Capitol Beltway. And then they said, hey, there's an F-14D at the Richmond International Airport. And would you like that? And I was like, are you kidding me? I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> and, and then they called and they called me right back. And they said, whoops, we, we're sorry. The F-14D has already been spoken for by a museum in Nashville. And I was... My heart sunk, and then she said, but we have an F-14A that's available at the Quonset State Airport, which is now at the Quonset Air, Air Museum up in near Newport. Rhode Island. Island. 
So I had some friends who were at the War College run over there and take a look at it. They climbed over it and they said, fun, this F-14A is in pristine condition. In fact, there's a helmet still on the front seat. The whole AUG-9 system, the, the ejection seats, the entire system is all still there. They open panels up. And they're like, the only thing that's been removed are the crypto units. And so I, I, we, we took we made you know verbal arrangements to take ownership of the jet. To make a long story short, I went down to Slapshot and I walked up and I, I, I put together the little brief of like, here's the Prowler, here's the Tomcat, here's what we got. He looks at the Buno of the Tomcat, which is 162591, and he does this. He's like, he's like, fun, give me a second. Rolls behind his desk, pulls out his log, and he's like, he's like going back, back and back and back, and he's like slowing down. He's like, he's like, I knew it. He's like, I have a hundred hours in this jet when it was the air demo jet that he flew in VF-124 back in 1984. And he goes, how much is it going to cost to get here? <laughs> so we we turned to and through a, a Herculean contracting and movement effort that took the next almost year and a half, we moved that aircraft from Quonset down to Annapolis, took the wings, the stabs off, trucked that thing down in the middle of the night, and then ultimately craned it in position and reassembled it. And then to top it off, we repainted it as a 1984 VF-124 um, air demo team aircraft. Very um, nice. Very and nice. And so that thing still sits proudly there and uh, will hopefully <laughs> be sitting there for uh, many more decades to inspire me. I saw a lot of I saw a lot of coverage on um, online when you guys did that effort and, and more recently. And uh I mean, I didn't know you at the time, but or that you had anything to do with it. But uh, that that brought a lot of pride to the Tomcat community and the Naval Academy community. So nice job. Uh, I know there's hundreds of little things to chase down and uh, and fix to make that happen. So yeah, that was it was an honor. But uh, you know, by it was an honor to reconnect with the whole community and the four aviators that are painted on that jet made made it happen and and helped out. That is nasty Manazir. Um, and Slapshot on one side, painted names. On the other side is Stewie Stewart and uh, Size Sizemore. And, si- and Size and Nasty would come out whenever they could to help out with whatever we needed done. Um, All great Americans. I know yeah, those guys. It was, it, was, it was remarkable to have them out there uh, working and painting and slapping PVC pipes on the uh, on the hydraulic actuators so that the, the horizontal st- – or the uh, – the rudders won't move in the wind. I mean, size up there, cutting PVC. It was great. It, it really was a remarkable so, time. So did that lead you to what you're doing now? Or uh, how did that connect you to, to your next adventure, your next yeah, phase? It did. Uh, and I really owe it to that aircraft and everyone who was involved in this. Um, I was I retired in 2017. This Tomcat moving effort took a year more. I was retired and running this for Slapshot, and I'm really honored he let me do this. And at the time, I was diving into entrepreneurship. I was involved in, a, in an effort to commercialize some Navy technology and biogas, and it wasn't working out. And I was at a year into the effort, and uh, the Tomcat was sitting there needing to be painted. Um, I took it, a, you know, I, I created a small team to help finish restoring and repainting it. As I was struggling as a new entrepreneur, fresh out of fresh retiree, 
and that Tomcat reminded me of really the, the, the values and the ethos of the Tomcat community, um, which, which we all know very well. It's not just get or done. Um, it's based in teamwork reflected in, you know, the, the team of two, um, it, the, the tenacity, the, the, um, the, the competitiveness, the, the drive, the, um, everything that made the Tomcat community, uh, what it is, what it was for 40 years was reflected in that effort right there. And it was working with size who, who brought it out, um, who reminded me of an effort we had in 2005, on the, on the Roosevelt, we added Rover to the Tomcat on its very last deployment to transmit yeah. video. He reminded me like, you know, of, of all the great things we did, we made it happen. And we, um, and so I, I took that opportunity to pivot my entire entrepreneurial focus to help other veterans and military spouses who, who are launching businesses and nonprofits. I realized the whole, I mean, as I stood on that aircraft, I'm like, man, this is, I'm, uh, I was built by this community and I just wanted to pay it, pay it forward and, and everything it had done for me. Um, and out of that failure as a first year entrepreneur, I, I retooled the business to help other veterans and military spouses, uh, help them do what I had struggled to do better. So what's your business called? Be sure to tell well, us. Yeah. So reformed is, uh, R E number four O R M E D. Uh, serves the veteran and military spouse community through virtual events and a family of back office business services that are all veteran delivered that helps all of us launch and grow our businesses to make a small or big impact in the world. That's awesome. Man, you got your elevator speech down. That's very <laughs> That's awesome. And what a great, yeah, what a great effort. No kidding, Crunch. So what's it, what's the website for reform? Yeah, sure. So it's www.reformed and that's R E four O R M E D.com. We'll put that up. Awesome. Very cool. Reform.com. We'll see if we can throw that in the links below the, below the episode. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And you know, I, I can't also hesitate to say we just launched a book, uh, a number of us veterans. Uh, there's one, other Tomcat aviator, Ponch Rivera in there. So um, 13 veteran entrepreneurs who who moved, who transitioned out of the military to join, to become entrepreneurs and support each other. And it's the stories about how they have learned to lean on each other and, um, and support each other's growth as business people. And the story of that Tomcat is, is really centered it's front and center in my chapter because it, it played such an instrumental role, um, as did Slapshot and Nasty and Size and Stewie um, in in that transition of mine. And so, if anyone wants to read the book, it's it's called Strength and Gratitude. It's available on Amazon. Uh, you can just Google uh, www.strengthandgratitude.com. It'll take you to the Amazon link. You can check out that book and uh, read about how. F-14A Bureau number 162591 helped this little F-14D radar intercept officer um, succeed as an entrepreneur. Awesome. Fun. Awesome. Yeah, good. Nice. Uh, nice next chapters, man. That's impressive. All right. So now we can announce the winners of the giveaways from episode 10, which include copies of the book Top Gun Lessons from the Sky. Yes, the winners of the books are Fabrizio Sartorelli and S. Manning. We will contact you by email to get your mailing address. 
Hey, Bio, now is it true that we actually have a limited number of the embroidered F-14 Tomcast polo shirts for sale? That's true, Crunch. As a trial, we had some dark blue shirts embroidered with the F-14 Tomcast logo. At this time, the only sizes available are large or extra large, and those are U.S. sizes. Now, this is a bit tricky because we don't have a store set up. So if you are interested in a shirt, and remember, we only have sizes large and extra large, and the only color is dark blue, but please send an email to questions at f14tomcast.com and put polo shirt in the subject. We only had a limited number of shirts embroidered, so we can only sell to the first few people who reply who express an interest. And we cannot guarantee a shirt for everyone who sends emails. We'll do the best we can. Also, it'll be one shirt per person. Oh, great. Now, how much is that going to cost and how does one pay for it? I'm glad you asked. So, let me remind you, don't send any money yet. If you are interested, send that email. And if we can provide you a shirt, we will reply. The cost is, in the United States, it'll be $45 per shirt. Sending it to Europe will be $70 per shirt, and to Australia, it's $110 per shirt. For other locations, send us your address, and I'll have to check the postage rates, because these prices include postage. Remember, we can't guarantee a shirt for every email, but if they're available, we'll reply to your email and make arrangements. Due to the limited number, the deadline for expressing an interest in a shirt is February 2nd, 2022. Good luck. Hey, we're uh th- this has been a great interview and we're we're right about the right amount of time. Can you you know, I mean, you've covered a lot of stuff and you certainly covered a lot more than I thought we were going to talk about tonight. Yeah. You know, we covered the uh the beeps and squeaks that uh, Crunch was dying to get into and uh we covered the combat <laughs> mission and we compared Oh, man, you did a great job tonight, buddy. So so nice job representing the uh, F-14D Rio community. Very well done. You know, Bio, uh, can I tell one more story that means a lot to me about the Tom, about the F-14 Crunch. community? What do you think, Crunch? One, okay. Uh, only if the, if the audience asks for it. What do you say? Okay, go ahead. They said yes. You know, the, the, I just alluded to it, and it involves size, size more. Um, as Crunch recalls, we, the last Tomcat deployment to Iraq – we were kind of alone and unafraid, and we were not really sure how the last Tomcat would be received on its last deployment. But we not only got the GB38 500-pound JDM upgrade, um, we would get something called a, the Rover upgrade. And that, that to, to date, to me, remains the, one of the greatest legacies of that community because it demonstrated just how willing that community was to support the, ground, the forces, the, uh, the troops on the ground. And that the quick story um, is we all we we check into Iraq 2005. We all come come back after our first flights over over country, and we're all we're, we've each been asked what our rover frequency is, and nobody knows what this thing is. Well, we we do a little bit of research, check back with our our program office in Pax River, which is now a, fo- a team of like two people. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's this new capability that's supporting ground forces with streaming video. Okay, well, what, are we gonna, what, what can we do about it? And the, I, the, quickly, within like 48 hours, the program office, which was a team of two, 
and us on the on the on the Roosevelt VF thirty one and two thirteen came up with a way to install a rover capable transmitter for full motion video off the lantern pod down to troops in the ground for about eight hundred dollars an aircraft. And those guys sent out a team to the ship. They were there within like seven days with all the kits required, began drilling holes in the aircraft, installing the antennas, hot wiring the aircraft, uh, jumping the lantern system. And we were flying that thing in support of ground troops in about a day. And what a victory that was. And we, we size, size more. I'll never forget this. I was with Twig LeBranch. Twig takes this idea and he's like, and, uh, uh, Twig walks us down to Size's office. Size sees the idea and he's like, we need to go talk to Admiral Winnefeld. W- Jaws Winnefeld catches the idea and he's like, let's make this happen. Well, I mean, he, we made it happen in like, th- it was like 14 or 21 days. And it remains to me one of the greatest legacies of the Tomcat community, just to show how flexible we were on its last deployment to support troops on the ground and make a difference. No, and that it, is impressive. I mean, I, I was a defense contractor sitting at a desk in the Pentagon, and I remember reading about this, and I'm going like, damn. Okay, Rover, I just looked it up, remotely operated video enhanced receiver. So it, that's what it means, but it's what you already described, the capability. Yes. And that was, I mean, that was a very nice parting shot kind of. You know, and I I, I know we we're short on time, and you, you guys are ready to go, but I want to tell that story because – you know, it just demonstrated some of the greatest parts of, the, of our community um, with some of the greatest people that I have ever I've ever had the chance to work with. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, many years later, there's Size Sizemore and I back on that 162591 painting that jet, trying to trying to, you know, make that thing look pretty for Slapshot and re- recounting that story back on uh, on the Roosevelt from 2005. That's a good one. That's awesome. That's good stuff. All right. Well, to everybody, I think that is uh, an amazing, amazing interview. Fun. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, this is, I, I, I can tell you right now, this is going to be a fan favorite. <laughs> That's my prediction. Uh, there's just some great stories and you're a great storyteller and I greatly appreciate your time. And I also thank you for everything that you do for our fellow veterans with your, your, your business where you, you help them grow their businesses. So thank you for that. Thanks guys. It's been an honor. Okay, this is a topic that we've thought about and decided to share. The F-14 Tomcast has production costs and other expenses for each episode. And frankly, we've been running at a deficit and have been since the beginning. We've been supported by the Fighter Pilot Podcast, but we'd like your assistance in helping us to balance the books. And to support us, go to fighterpilotpodcast.com. Scroll down to where it says, help keep us in the air, and click on make a donation. When you donate, you'll have the opportunity to add a message. Please write in F14 Tomcast. You can use PayPal, a credit card, or a debit card to make a donation. For anyone who contributes $5 or more, we will list your name in the credits of a future episode. And for those who contribute $100 more, I will send you an autographed copy of my book, Top Gun Days. Just be sure to leave your mailing address in your message. We hope you've found value in these episodes and will help us keep going. And thank you for following our podcast. 
Wow, that was just a great interview. Not only his description of the F-14D systems, but at the end he was talking about moving the Tomcat to the Naval Academy and his work with ex-military entrepreneurs. It was very inspiring. But I do want to explain one term that Fun used near the end, and that's ROVER, R-O-V-E-R. That stands for Remotely Operated Video Enhanced Receiver. And in simple terms, it allowed the F-14 crew to send images from their own sensors down to a ground-based laptop. It was an incredibly valuable resource for forward air controllers, and it was also used on some other platforms. Thanks. I needed a refresher on Rover. You know, one of the things that Fun said that made a big impression on me was how he dealt with a mission computer failure on a combat flight. Resetting the computer and re-entering the target coordinates on the way in, that's a varsity performance. All right, that's it for today's episode. Please tell your friends about the F-14 Tomcast. We'd love to have more loyal listeners. And be sure to come back for our next episode, the F-14 in Desert Storm. You've been listening to the F-14 Tomcast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at f14tomcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, visit bvrpro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.